Hi, everyone. Welcome back to um, another episode of No Footprints on Riot Radio. Don't forget that you can follow us on DSCI Riot Radio. And this is your host, Lawrence Bryan. Today, we're going to be looking at global Indigenous issues. But first, I just wanted to share with you a few, a few quotes um, from different people relating from sustainability to um, Indigenous. So the first quote that I have from you is from someone in Ojibwe, and their name is Winono Laduke. And they said, someone needs to explain to me why wanting clean drinking water makes you an activist and why proposing to destroy water with chemical warfare doesn't make a corporation a terrorist. And if you were listening to one of my previous episodes, I did discuss the fact that a lot of Indigenous here in Canada have been without water for decades. So definitely if you're interested in this type um, or learning more about this situation, definitely check that episode out. Another quote by Ed Bagley Jr. said, I don't understand why when we destroy something created by man, we call it vandalism. But when we destroy something created by nature, we call it progress. A Twitter user commented, when you understand that under capitalism, a forest has no value until it's cut down, you begin to understand the root of our ecological crisis. And actually, island nations are on the forefront of climate change disasters. Um, because most of these climate changes are already seeing the effects of sea level rise. And um, The Guardian actually has a really good article on this. For example, um, I have some friends who live in the Marshall Islands in Palau, um, and they are already seeing sea level rise in islands like Tuvalu. Um, scientists have actually predicted that these islands where people live could be uninhabitable in the next 50 to 100 years. And this actually brings up the question of whether or not, where, where are these climate refugees going to be going? Where, what country is going to accept them into their, to live there, right? Like these are all very real questions that we have to be asking. So the Guardian, I wanna read a little bit from their article that say, the locals can actually feel these effects much sooner. And someone named Nazaleta Satani, who is Frank's aunt, sleeps beside the lagoon at night in the wooden shack using a float boy as a pillow. Initially a non-believer in climate change, like many older people on the island, Satani has become slowly convinced of the science as her daily life becomes tougher with every erratic movement of the sea. Since the rising ocean contaminated underwater ground supplies, Tuvalu is now totally reliant on rainwater and droughts are occurring with alarming frequency. Even if the locals could plant successfully, there is now not enough rain to keep even simple kitchen gardens alive. The fish too, the stuff of life here, have become suspect. Cicatera poisoning affects reef fish who have ingested microalgaes expelled by bleached coral. When fish infected with the cicatera toxins are consumed by humans, it causes an immediate and sometimes severe illness, vomiting, fevers, and diarrhea. And I want to pause and just talk about what exactly coral bleaching is. Um, so the North, sorry, the NOAA, which stands for the United States National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association, defines it as this. It's when warmer water temperatures result in coral bleaching, okay? So when the water is too warm, the corals actually expel the algae that lives in their tissues, and this causes the coral to come to turn completely white. 
and it's called coral bleaching. And when it's bleached, it's not dead, um, but coral reefs do provide protection against flooding and the erosion of coastlines. So if they're gone, then there will be very rapid erosion of coastlines and many small island countries might actually vanish from the world map. And that is some more information I got from a website called telanganatoday.com. So islands are actually not the only ones going underwater. They will be on the front lines, but the, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has projected that by as soon as 2100, that is not far away, that is like in my lifetime, several coast of cities, even in the US, are going to be underwater. So some of those cities that they have listed are New Orleans, Louisiana, Miami, Florida, Houston, Texas, Atlantic City, New Jersey, New York, New York, Charleston, South Carolina, Boston, Massachusetts, and Virginia Beach, Virginia. And this is if things keep going the same way that they are and if sea level continues to rise. And part of this, I believe, is from the ice caps melting at a very rapid rate. They're not supposed to. So when the poles melt, um, the, the ice melts and it creates more water and then things start getting flooded. So that is a really interesting article that you can read on Business Insider and it's titled Eight American Cities That Could Disappear by 2100. And I want to talk a little bit about missions, volunteering, um, and this is a big indigenous issue, something known as white saviorism, okay? So not only are we seeing sea level rise as an indigenous issue, but also new introduced diseases, okay? So I'm going to read a little bit of an excerpt from Survival International. They have a really good Instagram page, super informative. Um, they have toolkits for people who want to be activists and they will give you like a Dropbox folder of files and other stuff. And I did this myself and it was like really informational. Um, so they say, introduced diseases are the bigger, the, sorry, the biggest killer of isolated tribal people who haven't developed immunity to viruses such as influenza, measles, and chickenpox that most other societies have been in contact with for hundreds of years. So when I'm talking about this missions in volunteering, I'm talking about two uncontacted tribes, to like going out into nowhere and finding tribes that have never made human contact with other people, right? So following their first real contact in 1987, 45 people from the Zoe tribe died from epidemics of flu, malaria, and respiratory diseases transmitted by missionaries. Missionary groups today face charges of paving the way for the sort of assimilation, which destroys cultural values and opens indigenous people to economic exploitation. Those who support missionary work frequently argue in favor of the essential services missions provide to indigenous communities, healthcare, education, and transport. And this, they argue, is often provided only by missionaries, which is true, but the price paid for these services is high, and missionaries often show little respect for the cultures of indigenous people. On the contrary, they overtly undermine the confidence of indigenous peoples by robbing them of their beliefs and faith in themselves. And this, if you're not very familiar with what missions is, um, in the Christian religion, 
there is something called missionary work where you are supposed to go out into every place in the world and tell them about their God and their religion and to convert them to it. Um, so that is like the purpose of missions. And on top of that, they will provide other essential services like healthcare, education, <clears throat> transport. So someone from the Marubo tribe in Brazil named Beto Marubo said, missionary activities will mean the destruction of the last uncontacted peoples in the Javari Valley. Another person, Davy Kopenwa from the UN Human Rights Council on February 3rd, 2020 said, and when the whites come, their epidemics accompany them, the gold miners undoubtedly will kill the isolated indigenous people with their shotguns and their diseases, their malaria and their pneumonia. This is actually currently right now happening in the Amazon as different religious groups are going out to evangelize to contacted, uncontacted Amazon tribes and other groups are protesting against it saying that, especially with coronavirus right now, it's quite dangerous, right? And this is not just missions, but also volunteering I want to touch on as well. I think that people uh, here in North America, we do um, often volunteer trips overseas and not always really put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are receiving this charity work. Um, and uh, Survival International also talked a little bit about this. And they said, how do the people feel when you spend a weekend in their community handing out your used clothes. There is a cognitive dissonance in having a team of Westerners in hot pants throw cans of foreign food from trucks and into the hands of conservative slum dwellers in India. And then speaking on a little bit of more one's focus on being with children, they said, then the volunteers leave feeling like their one afternoon has done some good for the world while the children are left waiting to temporarily bond with the next batch of Good Samaritans. And there's something called orphan tourism, which is another big thing. Um, it's a huge issue globally, with Africa being a front runner for the afternoon play dates. In many cases, tourists drop off travelers for mere hours so that they can hug orphans with AIDS. Travelers then get back on their tour bus feeling good about themselves. Those children have become objects and not only serve to reinforce stereotypes. And then in the building situation, hiring local labor would invest the money donated for the volunteer project directly into the community. So it is clearly ideal to hire local labor, right? The crux of the issue is that some programs create a system that can only be maintained by more volunteering and foreign donations. This is dependency. This is not ideal because it keeps foreigners as a support system for community. So this is what we call white saviorism. And this is in the climate movement. So I want to read a little bit of an excerpt taken from a video by someone named Mitzi Janelle Tan. She's a climate justice activist from Manila, Philippines. And you can find her on Instagram, or you can find um, this piece on Bad Activist Collectivist Instagram. Um, so what it said was, white saviorism is a form of false generosity, which maintains and embodies white supremacy. It frames the white outsider as a savior and hero and the people of color as too stupid, too downtrodden, too powerless to help themselves. 
The White Man's Burden was coined in a poem written in 1899 to encourage the U.S. colonization of the Philippines. Portrayed, it, it portrayed indigenous people as uncivilized savages that needed to be saved, that needed enlightenment from the white man. The white man's burden is to carry, to be the savior of the Philippines and other people of color, to liberate us from our barbarism and savagery. For global south or MAPA activists, it can be so difficult to have your voice heard, even more to be listened to and valued. Instead, we are tokenized, reduced to sad stories and statistics, an anecdote in a speech or utilized to teach life lessons about gratitude and the importance of giving back. To our white and privileged allies, we don't need you to be the voice for the voiceless. Instead, silence the room, make space for us, stand united and fight with us, which we each have a voice. We each have our own unique story to tell and share and people need to listen. If you truly want to help us join our campaigns, Remember that the reason we're so impacted by the climate crisis is because of the imperialist plunder of your countries. So demand accountability, action, and change from your leaders. White activists need to face their privilege and discomfort to truly be in solidarity with BIPOC activists. We are not each other's enemy. The enemy is a system that ingrains these injustices in our culture. The elite few that maintain the system because it keeps them in power. We must confront white saviorism to create a better movement, dismantle systems of, of oppression, and fight for liberation and create a safe present and a green and just future for all. And just in case some of those terms in that were a little bit unfamiliar to you, BIPOC refers to Black Indigenous People of Color, so that's an acronym, as well as MAPA, which stands for Most Effective People in Areas generally referred to in the climate change movement as people who are most affected by climate change. And also, I wanted to talk a little bit about white privilege. You can find in this um, graphic was really interesting how it was laid out on Instagram by Courtney. Her handle is Courtney AHN Design, which actually struck me. White privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It means that your skin tone isn't one of the things making it harder. That's something to think about. White privilege exists as a direct result of both historic and enduring racism, biases, and practices designed to oppress people of color. White privilege means you actively benefit from the oppression of people of color, meaning you are the dominant representation on all media, you don't get harassed for existing in public locations, you have inherited power and wealth, no one questions your citizenship, People at work look like you, products are designed for your first, like makeup, for example. Your actions aren't perceived as, one, as those of all your race. Systemic racism exists at every level of society. And the wealth gap is 90% white owned and 10% people of color owned. Black students, here are some statistics for you. Students are three times more likely to be suspended. Black women are four times more likely to be or to die from childbirth. Black graduates are two times more likely to be unemployed. Black Americans make up 40% of the prison populations. Black Americans are also 30% more likely to get pulled over. And Black Americans are shown 18% fewer homes. And what can you do about this is teach other white folks the barriers to success for people of color, promise to listen and to amplify the voices of people of color, be more than just not racist, but actively anti-racist, 
and confront racial injustices even when it's uncomfortable. And something that I thought was really interesting was Australia. I was looking up global indigenous issues and definitely I will be obviously able to cover every country's history. But I've never, I, I, I live in the West, I come from Canada and I learn about Canada in mostly the United States history. So when I was seeing people posting about Australian Aboriginal history, I felt bad that this is something that I've been conditioned to not even really think about. I had never really thought about the history of Australian culture and even the people in Australia are not taught this, which is a big issue because in schools, people are taught from colonization onwards and it's erasing the history of the people of the past. But this is something that I really thought was very, very interesting. I was watching a TED talk and this TED talk um, was by Amy Tonsing. You can look it up. It's called, We Can Lose the Oldest Culture on Our Planet. And she was saying, when the pyramids were being built, the Aboriginal culture in Australia was already running for 55,000 years. And scientists believe that they've been around for at least 60,000 years. That's crazy. The last two centuries of that time have brought about more change than ever with, with colonization. And there was an indigenous, or I should say Aboriginal, I actually Googled the difference between indigenous and Aboriginal because I was getting a little bit confused. Indigenous is mostly referring to North American where Aboriginal is an international term, just so that the, yeah, I just thought I would say that. So um, Amy was talking about this lady she met named Lily, who was an Aboriginal woman, um, telling about the story of her, her history and where she came from and how when World War II happened, that's when um, they were thrown into um, a colonized place, I want to say. So before that, they lived on their own in their own culture, right? So what she had said, what Amy said about this was that when Lily talked about that life before World War II, she had this glimmer in her eyes and it was about that connection to her country and I wanted to know where I could find that in Aboriginal Australia today because it was so contrary to the prevalent narrative that I was hearing everywhere about this non-trodden Indigenous group in Australia. There's stolen land, there's massacres, there's government policies that controlled where they worked, who they married, their movement, they even took their children away, and that's today known as the stolen generation, which is similar to our residential school system that happened here in Canada. So my roommate, actually, I was telling her about the radio show that I was planning and I was writing about it. And she told me about this book that she read in literature class called The Secret River. And I haven't read it yet. It's by Kate Greenville or Grenville, I should say. And um, it sounded so interesting. So I highly recommend looking it up. Basically, I want to tell you a quick description of it. Um, so this is the description on Apple Books of it. It says, a life of petty crime and poverty on the streets of the 19th century London sentences William Thornhill, along with his wife and children, to exile in the colonial outpost of Australia. But among the convicts of New South Wales, there is a whisper of the possibility of freedom away from Sydney and up the Hawkesbury River for those who dare to stake a claim. Kate Granville tells a heart-wrenching story of a family in exile sweeping across the 19th century from the teeming banks of the Thames in London to the hard scrabble frontier settlement of Sydney, Australia, the secret river sets us down 
in an unforgiving land and masterfully confronts us with a brutal, brutal piece of colonization. And then Wikipedia kind of went into more detail and said that this book explores what might have happened when Europeans colonized land that was already inhabited by Aboriginal people. And it was inspired by Kate's desire to understand the history of her ancestor, Solomon Wiseman, who settled on the Hawkesbury River at the area now known as Wiseman's Ferry. Initially intended to be a work of nonfiction about Wiseman, the book eventually became a fictional work. And I thought this was very interesting. My roommate was telling me a little bit about it, saying that the Aboriginal culture back then, like everyone was just allowed to be. Like there, you could go anywhere, do anything and, and just live, right? And um, this was one of the oldest civilizations and cultures in, in the world, um, if not the oldest. And it was very interesting that she said, when, when the settlers came, um, this is how she described the book. She said that the settlers came and they were trying to like claim a piece of land, like this is mine. And they would have this dispute because the Aboriginal people were like, what do you mean this is yours? Like, that's not just yours. And so there was this very different contrast, right? Which I thought was very interesting. I am very interested to read it because um, I think that I want to know about like post, I mean, pre-colonization times. Like I want to learn about that. So there was something um, quoted by recommendation 290, which is from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And it said, it is essential that Aboriginal viewpoints, interests, perceptions, and experiences, sorry, are, experiences are reflected in curricula teaching and admin, I am sorry guys, I cannot seem to English today, and administration of schools. The curricula of schools at all levels should reflect the fact that Australia has an Aboriginal history and Aboriginal viewpoints on social, cultural, and historical matters because there is a big campaign. There's one called Learn Our Truth on Instagram. They have a website, it's very good. And they're in partnership with a couple of their um, organizations that are really pushing the government to actually teach the history because for people, Aboriginal descendants and peoples who are in these classrooms and learning about just cult, like Australia was discovered at this time in so on and that's all and they don't learn anything about themselves and it's, it's very harmful right so there's another campaign now this one's about the west united states mayflowers kill and so the campaign is called mayflowers kill campaign you can find it on survival international's instagram page website and so if you're wondering what is that campaign so if, if you're from Canada and you don't know what the Mayflower is, I don't really know. I was um, raised with an American curriculum, so I'm not sure if I know what it is just because of that. But if you don't know what it is, um, the Mayflower was a boat that came from England, I think, to America. And that's the boat that came and the people came off and colonized America, right? So this campaign highlights Indigenous perspectives on the history of contact in light of the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. And it reveals the truth about the Mayflower's legacy of colonialism and genocide and discusses the impacts that tribal communities face today, both in the United States and in other countries where this history is repeating itself. 400 years ago, the Mayflower landed at Patizet, which is known to many as Plymouth Rock on Wampanoag land 
hoping I pronounced that correctly, and that is now considered Massachusetts. The Mayflower Landing was followed by centuries of invasion, war, and disease, which killed tens of millions of indigenous people. But Wampanoag Nation and other indigenous peoples are still here defending their lands, their languages, their identities, and this history is being repeated in other parts of the world, particularly in South America, where many indigenous peoples remain subject to deadly first contact with outsiders. These new age Mayflowers are still landing on the shores of uncontacted tribes. This campaign is a collaboration between tribal members in the US and Survival International. Mayflowers Kill is fighting back and invites you to join for tribes, for nature, and for all humanity. And also, um, someone named Sydney Pozuelo, who is the former director of the Department of Indigenous and Isolation at Punai, Brazil, said that the first right of these uncontacted tribes is to allow them to remain uncontacted. Sorry, one minute. And I wanted to move on to Canada and colonialization there. So here in Canada, we see in 1876, the Indian Act comes about and it included policies that denied Canada's indigenous voting rights. And it created and it controlled the movement on and off reserves and it criminalized potlatches and cultural ceremonies and it forbade political organizing, sorry, political organizing and created the Indian status and more. If you're not familiar with a potlatch, I was not familiar with that either. That is a gift giving ceremony and that's a spiritual uh, ceremony within indigenous culture. So um, the Indian residential school system intent, which I mentioned earlier, was to quote unquote, kill the Indian with the child. How scary is that? It actually stole indigenous children from their parents here in Canada. And this is recent, like very recent, um, like, one generation ago, this was like, or one or two generations ago, this was like happening. I think these people, it was one generation ago because they were making stories or um, they were having films done about them uh, where they were talking about their, this experience. So they were actually placed into foster homes and adoption centers through Central Canada and Europe. And they were very, very mistreated, um, not fed properly. It, it was brutal. So definitely look into um, residential school systems if you're wanting to learn more about what happened in Canada, because I feel like most people don't. And during the 1900s, one of the government's tools of colonial violence, indigenous nations were forced to relocate onto different land with little resources. And this usually led to poverty, starvation, and death. So I wanted to give a quick overview of Ontario. Here's where I'm from, Ontario's history of the Six Nations sovereignty over the Grand River, okay? So we go all the way back to 1784. This is when the government of the governor of sorry of Quebec granted the tract of land to the Iroquois, which is uh, the same as Six Nations, Iroquois Six Nations, um, for their allyship during the American Revolution. So they basically just said, "Thanks for helping us in the war. Have this land." And this included 10 kilometers on both sides of the Grand River, and that became the basis of the Six Nation Reserve. So uh, about six years later, 1791 rolls around, Canadian government created a province called Upper Cabinet Canada, and that led to another dispute between the crown and the provincial government that the indigenous would have to negotiate their land title and 
if you're not familiar with Canada, um, we are in relationship with the crown of the England, sorry, the England. We are in relationship with England and we are part of their Commonwealth. So we deal with them, they're our authority technically. Um, and then in 1791, an error in the boundary of the original land track was found. So they actually had inaccurately thought some of the Grand River was given to the crown as part of the Mississauga seeding. And if you're not familiar, Mississauga is one of the indigenous groups here. Um, and that's where the city's name came from. We're actually on Mississauga's land here in Toronto. So it's very good for us to be familiar with where, um, whose land we're on. And um, so the crown appointed someone named Augustus Jones to go survey the land. And Jones redefined the boundary that they were disputing. Um, and today that's known as Jones Baseline. So a year later, the crown purchases the rest of the Mississauga's indigenous land. And the crown instead kept the inaccurately portioned tract of the Upper Grand River for itself. The next year in 1793, John Graves Simcoe, who was the first Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, attempted to mediate between six nations and the Crown on the disputed Grand River land, and they redefined the boundaries with the Simcoe patent. Now that is something that clarified all land transactions in the Six Nations newly defined territory, and it had to be approved by the Crown. But this actually, the Simcoe patent failed to recognize the portion of the Upper Grand River that was rightfully theirs that the Crown just took. And the leaders of the Six Nations, therefore they just rejected the whole Simcoe patent um, 1796, the Six Nations began selling their land along the Grand River as they wanted to, and they ignored the Crown's objections because of theirs, and they ignored the Simcoe patent, and the leaders reached an agreement with Simcoe's successor, successor uh, whose name is Peter Russell, that they can sell their land as long as they first offered it to the Crown. So about um, 50 years later, it's 1847, most of the land by that point had been sold to the crown. And in turn, that was given, um, the crown gave it to private entities. So Canada recommended the Six Nations to actually just sell off the remainder of the land that they did have to the crown. And in exchange, they would get a reserve. But the leaders disputed this agreement and they said that they actually only were leasing the land to the crown and they didn't actually ever sell it to them. 100 years later, approximately in 1974, Six Nations created something called SNLCRO, which is Six Nations Land Claims Research Office. And they have submitted since then 29 claims to the federal government. 1987, an order in council adds about 104,883 hectares of lands to the Six Nations Reserve from one claim. And they just canceled the other 28. So in 1995, the government closed the 20 other claims Although the Six Nations were still defending them and they never come to any conclusion. And then in 2006, Douglas Creek Estates tries to build on Six Nations protected place of the Grand River and protesters created blockades. However, the Ontario OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, they raided the encampment and they arrested the Indigenous protests and Ontario paid for the land and stopped the building on the territory and the ownership still remains in dispute. And in 2020, Mackenzie Meadows Housing Development attempted to build on Six Nations territory. And again, OPP would arrest the protesters. So that's kind of what's going on with that. Um, 
And then that's just a brief glimpse in the history of Indigenous Canada, which is an ongoing battle for their auto autonomy agency and their own sovereignty, which they should have. And we definitely grow up with a very slanted version of the way history went in our schools. This is something that we really need to educate ourselves on because um, and have these things pushed to be taught in schools or and really work on bringing these issues to light because it's still happening over and over today and history is going to continue to repeat itself if we don't learn the truth about what happened and, and this is going to progress towards disasters such as climate disasters, for example. So maybe if you have, when you have time, try to find out things that happen and open up your worldview that's probably been told to you from a certain side of a story and see if you can find out what the other side of the story is. So thanks everyone for listening today and I'll see you next time on No Footprints. This has been your host, Lawrence Fry. And don't forget that you can follow us online at DCI Riot Radio.